0: God Elect and Glorious in Christ, a number of years ago, and it doesn't happen very often where a pastor's words are taken so literally, but I preached a sermon about the uniqueness of the name of Jesus, and how we should be bold as Christians to declare that only Jesus saves, and a brother in the congregation, this is back in Telqua B.C., um, on his workshop that, re- that was right on the highway, Highway 16, he put a big sign on the front of his, work, uh, of his workshop in bold letters saying, only Jesus saves, accept no substitutes. And of course, as you can imagine, not everyone had uh, a, a favorable reaction to that. Um, and he, 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 in fact, got a few uh, communications, one in fact a scolding letter from a fellow businessman that basically said that to say such things in public is hurtful or even offensive to some people, especially people of other religions. To to say something like only Jesus saves accept no substitutes. Well I'm glad to say that that sign still remains on this brother's workshop today. But the response at the time was a reminder that the name of Jesus is going to offend some people, in fact many people. But even so, we as God's people must never be or strive to be politically correct, seeking to compromise on the teaching of of who Jesus is and what He has done. And certainly we must never be ashamed to declare that only Jesus saves. And this begins with us, with a personal, individual, deep conviction. That it is necessary, it is absolutely necessary to confess the name of Jesus in order to be saved. Now, in the the, uh, catechism's explanation of the Apostles' Creed, we're focusing, of course, you might uh, remember, on why each article is necessary. What are the implications of each article of the Apostles' Creed? And we continue in that vein as we look this afternoon at the person and the work of Jesus the Son of God, and the second person of the Holy Trinity. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess, I believe in Jesus, which means Savior. Well, we're asking this afternoon, why is that important? What are the implications of confessing this specific name? And this is what we hope to see this afternoon as we look at Lord's Day 11. And may the Lord remind us again why... The name of Jesus is indeed, as the old hymn goes, the name of Jesus is sweet in a believer's ear. We'll see this is our theme this afternoon as we look at Lord's Day 11. The necessity of confessing the name of Jesus, Savior. The necessity of confessing the name of Jesus, Savior. We'll see two points. The name Jesus, first of all, speaks of His mission. And secondly, it speaks of His perfection. Well, as we consider the necessity of confessing the name of Jesus, Savior, we see in the first place that His name speaks of His mission. Once again, let's recall what we confess in question and answer 29. We're asked, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Our answer, because He saves us from all our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Now, answer 29, you might know, combines or it's made up of two very powerful verses in the Bible Matthew 121 and Acts 4 verse 12 Matthew 121 boys and girls you might remember records the words of the angel of the Lord to Joseph the earthly human father humanly speaking father of Jesus and the angel said to Joseph that he was to take Mary as his wife and she will give birth to a son and you are to give his name will give him the name Jesus why because he will save his people from their sins and so Jesus is given a very specific name a name that would characterize his mission why he came what he came to do and being God's savior of course he doesn't leave it up to Mary and Joseph to name his son he himself names his son Listen as well into what Luke records in Luke 2, verse 21. In Luke 2, verse 21, we read this. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And Luke emphasizes that this was the name that Jesus was given, even before he was conceived. This was the name by which God's Savior would be identified. A name which, in itself, contained a description of what He came to do. He came to save His people from their sins. Later on, after His ascension into heaven, recognizing and believing what Jesus had done, the apostles also proclaimed, and this is in Acts 4 verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so here again, you find his name being connected to his mission. Now, names, as you might know, in biblical times, were not just means of identification. Today, if we're going to have a baby, what do we do? We go on the internet, we look at a list of names, and we come across a nice old-fashioned name, or one of the newer names, right? Marika. or or, or Emma, if you want to go old-fashioned, or John, or, you know, Mark, whatever. Um, And, uh, you know, we we look at that and we say, yeah, we like that name. Well, let's name our, if we have a son, let's name him this name. And if we have a daughter, let's name her that. Um, That's how we do things today. In biblical times, names were much more than just ways of identifying somebody. Quite often, the name of a person told something of his character, or something about even his health. So, for example, in the book of Ruth, we read about a man named Elimelech. And he had a son named Mahlon. Now, in Mahlon, uh, the name Mahlon in the Hebrew means weak or sick. And so, obviously, this describes the health of the child at birth. The name of the priest, Eli's grandson, Ichabod. The glory has departed. Spoke of the religious state of the nation of Israel at that time. Moses was so named because he was taken out of or drawn from the water. Or think of uh, how God describes his relationship to Israel contained in the name given to Hosea's son. He says, you are to name this son Lo-Ami, not my people. Again, speaking of his relationship with his people Israel at that time. Or the circumstances of one's birth might be described in his name. You might think of Rachel, Jacob's wife. She named her son Ben-Oni, even though Jacob then changed it to Benjamin, Benjamin. Uh, but Ben-Oni means son of my trouble. And she named him that as she died in childbirth. Names would sometimes even reflect the hopes of parents. And so Noah is from the Hebrew word meaning rest. His father Lamech named him Noah in the hope that he would bring them rest and comfort since the Lord had cursed the ground. And so names were given very specifically in biblical times. And so not surprisingly, God names His Son specifically. You are to give Him the name Jesus, because He will save His people from their sins. His name speaks of His mission to save. And this was a mission that could be traced all the way through the Old Testament, all the way in fact To God's promise to Adam and Eve after the fall. That promise was of one who would come to bring restoration. And who would crush the head of the serpent. And all through history the Lord was preparing the world for the coming of Jesus. And so in Psalm 130 verse 8 we hear of Israel's hope for the future. Speaking of their God. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Or listen as well to very familiar Verse in, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. And so Israel was looking forward the coming of the Lord to save them this is what the prophets spoke to them again and again and again in Isaiah 43 verse 3 God reminds them through his prophet I am the Lord your God the Holy One your Savior and these Old Testament verses we have to understand set the context for what the angel said to Joseph and it set the context for what the shepherds heard from the angel as well today In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. The the shepherds would not have understood what the angel was talking about had they not had the Old Testament scriptures that spoke of a coming Savior, that God Himself would come to save His people. And the naming of Jesus was God's way of announcing that that promised time had come. This was the Savior of the world. Salvation was to be found in no one else but Jesus. This name, Jesus, then, implies that all other saviors are excluded. God has named uniquely the savior of his people. And as soon as you begin to talk like that, that's where you run into problems with people, don't we? That exclusive claim that only Jesus saves. Only Jesus came from God to save us, right? That's what makes people say of us as Christians that you guys are intolerant and you're hateful, and you're unloving, and the world would be happy with us if we were all prepared to join hands with everyone of every religion, and every confession, and every philosophy, and sing Kumbaya. They would be happy with that. They would love us for that. But the minute we say, only Jesus saves, that exclusive claim, that's when we run into problems with people. The spirit of the age is really, do what works for you, right? Whatever When it comes to religion, Choose whatever fits your need, whatever you like to do, and if that's what works for you, great, good for you. And no one has the right to judge anyone, no one has the right to correct anyone, to tell anyone that, uh, you know, your, the path you're following is not the one that God desires from us. You need to believe in Jesus, you need to uh, gain your knowledge, your information from the Holy Scriptures. Uh that's seen as intolerant and bigoted and hateful. Satan, in fact, has played a a masterful card in our day. Because the thinking of our culture is, as you know, there is no absolute truth. There is no one truth, right? It's wrong and it's intolerant to promote one way over another. What do people say today? There are many paths up the mountain. You choose the one that's right for you. But sadly, many will learn Too late, that it's actually not many paths up the same mountain. It's many roads leading down to hell. Salvation is to be found in no one else, only in the name of Jesus. To quote the words of John 14, verse 6 Only in the name of Jesus do we find the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. We hear in Hebrews 7 verse 25 that Jesus alone is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. And so dear people of God, may the Lord give us eyes to see once again today that only in the name of Jesus is there salvation. He was named specifically to announce His mission which was to save us from our sins. But as we confess the necessity of confessing the name of Jesus, Savior, we see in the second place that that confession also speaks of His perfection, the perfection of Jesus. Again, let's uh, refer to the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 30. We're asked, do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? Our answer, no. Though they boast of Him in words, they, in fact, deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in Him all that is necessary for their salvation. So what are we to make of someone who says they believe in Jesus, but their lives and their attitudes show that they actually lean very heavily on their good works, on their own efforts. Well, the catechism reminds us that this is actually, it amounts to a denial of Jesus. In their heart of hearts, Jesus is not enough. He only gets us part of the way. We need to, as if you were in a relay race, grab the baton and run the rest of the way on, on your own. But of course, the original context in which the catechism was written was the 16th century Reformation. After many years of darkness, God had finally brought light back into His church. And God's Word was again placed into the hands of the common people. And godly men like John Calvin and Martin Luther and so many others were raised up to glean from the Holy Scriptures a proper understanding of what had been accomplished in Jesus Christ and what salvation was really comprised of. And under their teaching and preaching, and as the gospel spread through printed literature, eyes began to open, under the blessing of God, of course, eyes began to be opened to the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and praying to Mary and the saints, And buying indulgences and doing penance and purgatory. These were all now exposed for the lies that they were. The Catechism question addresses those who clung to these false teachings and who taught them and who practiced them blindly. And it asks, in effect, did they really, do they really believe in the Savior Jesus? And the answer is simply no. But sadly, the Roman Catholic Church was not the last to drift into dependence on good works and idolatry. Think about it. What do we say today of those who are deaf and remain deaf and choose to be deaf to the heresies and the blasphemies being spoken in their churches because they say, well, this is the denomination I belong to. This is the church where I was baptized, where my son made profession of faith, uh, where my children got married. And so I don't care what the church teaches now. Regardless of the heresies and the blasphemies and the denial of Jesus, they hold fast. This is my church. This is where I go every Sunday. What are those who dabble in the mysticism of prayer shawls and anointing oils? And, and, and actually come to the point where they deny the need for churches? for elders, for the Bible because they say, well, we have the Holy Spirit now who who leads me. So I don't need elders to tell me what is right and what is wrong, to watch over me, to oversee me. I don't need the Bible even because the Holy Spirit lives in me. What What do we say of those who are constantly craving the spiritual high in worship? Are they not seeking to add to the work of Christ? And do they truly see Him as sufficient? And it comes back to this. Is there a clear understanding of one's spiritual state if they are looking to other things to fill what only Jesus can fill? Can people who are craving after the spiritual high every Sunday or every whenever they go to church, and they will actually walk out and say, well, I don't feel I went to church today because I didn't feel it. You know, I didn't like the pastor's message. I didn't like the songs we sang, whatever it may be. Can they truly claim to believe in Jesus? And do they really understand their spiritual state and their need to come to God's house and worship with His people and to be reminded that we are all fellow sinners who are made fellow saints in Christ? Can such a one truly sing John Newton's much-loved hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me? Today, you know, the the word wretch, something like that would be very offensive to the ears of many. Because people don't like to use that kind of language uh, of themselves today. They they would quickly react and say, well, wretch, I'm a good person. A wretch is, is characterized by misery. It's a contemptible person, a person to be pitied, a beggar. I'm no wretch. Don't call me a wretch. Some churches will not even use the word sin anymore or speak of the consequences of sin. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, an attempt was actually made by the liberal branch of the PCUS, the Presbyterian Church of America in the States. The attempt made by the liberal branch was to change the the words of that much-loved hymn in Christ alone. And one of the, I think, the most powerful line in that hymn is this. It goes this way. This is the way the author penned it. But on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. This, the liberal branch of the PCA wanted to change it to this, but on that cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. They didn't want to talk about the wrath of God, the anger of God against mankind for their sin. They wanted to speak about the love of God only. Now, thankfully they failed to get the author's approval to make that change, but, but that's a classic modern-day example of, the, of a denial of the need for, and the perfection of the work of Jesus. And, beloved of God, unless we all see ourselves as we really are, as God describes us on the pages of Holy Scripture, unless we see ourselves for who we are, we will never really, really cast ourselves on the mercy of God, confessing, as the publican did, God have mercy on me, a sinner. We all, every one of us, have to come to an understanding that only the blood of Jesus saves us and saves us completely. Only Jesus alone has merited us salvation by His perfect obedience and His sacrifice on the cross. He alone was sent to be that, as the old uh, NKJV and the KJV uh, uses the word propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. He alone was sent to be that atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 that we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in him are we approved in the sight of God. Or do we become children of God? In our scripture reading, we heard the confession of the apostle Paul. And he says these words, Christ Jesus came into this, into this world to save sinners of whom I am foremost or chief. Now, notice what he says here. He didn't say Jesus came to try to save us, to make an attempt to save us, or to do his best to save us. He, say, he said Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In other words, there is nothing left undone. The work is finished. The vilest offender who truly believes, as that hymn goes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. If Paul were alive today, he would sing with us gladly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Paul would sit in our congregations and sing this gladly with us. Why? He calls himself the chief or the foremost or the worst of sinners. And people might wonder, why would Paul refer to him in such a self-deprecating way? Was this just a case of false humility here? No, he meant it. He believed it. Paul took an honest look at his life, and he saw himself as one who was, and always had been, in drastic need of God's mercy. In verse 13, he he calls himself a former blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent who received mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And so, Paul was a man who understood how great was God's grace in his life. He calls himself here a former blasphemer. That is, boys and girls, he spoke against the Lord of salvation and against the Lord Jesus Christ. And he actually forced others to do so as well. Listen to, what, uh, to this confession that comes from his lips, which is recorded in Acts 26, verses 9 to 11. Acts 26, verse 9 to 11. These are Paul's words, his confession. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme." And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. That's the Apostle Paul that we all now love and admire. But now he stood on the other side of the fence. And he was able to appreciate, finally, as his eyes were opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was able to appreciate the depth of his depravity and the greatness of his need. And So he calls himself the chief of sinners. He saw himself as a wretch who had opposed the work of the precious Savior until that moment on the Damascus Road when he was shown mercy. And ever since that, Paul became a tireless advocate for Christianity. And he worked and he fought tirelessly against adding to the work of Jesus. We heard in our scripture reading in verse 3, his charge to Timothy to command certain men not to teach false doctrines. Not to come up with all these myths and genealogies and to talk about things that you don't really understand. Stay with the word. Stay with the gospel that has been preached. Time and again, Paul battled against the false teachers who taught that more needed to be done. In all the churches. Paul didn't shy away from teaching the sufficiency of Christ. He never softened the gospel for anybody. He wasn't afraid of offending people by saying only Jesus saves. He wasn't interested in sending people to hell with a smile and a handshake. He writes to the Galatians, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He declares in our passage in verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He doesn't put a nice spin on it. He doesn't try to uh, soften it uh, to make us feel better about ourselves. He says Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He addresses here our greatest need. We are sinners. What's a sinner, boys and girls? It's a lawbreaker. Law someone who breaks, goes against the law of God. Who is ungodly by nature. Who is disobedient and immoral. Liars and so on. Like these, uh, as they were listed off here for us in our passage. A sinner is in need of salvation. A sinner is in need of forgiveness. A sinner is in need of reconciliation with God. And Paul gives the answer to, or the antidote to that need. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Our fallen nature, which has resulted in unrighteousness, had alienated us, separated us from a holy God. We are lost if we are not saved. The lions, as it were, are about to tear us apart and crush our bones. That's how hopeless we are apart from Christ. God's bow is drawn and His arrow is sharp. We are sunk up to our necks in the miry clay. We are fuel for the flames. We are plummeting from the heights to the rocks below. The fury of God's wrath is scorching. The fires of His wrath is licking at our clothes. We are sinking to the depths, bound in chains, weighed down by our guilt. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We are in need of saving. And Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Sinners like you and me, brothers and sisters. And he has finished the job. And, and beloved, it's good to be reminded of this again today. Because as the old saying goes, there's a little Arminianism in all of us. We all, in some, there's something strange about our sinful nature. We hear again and again and again of God's grace and mercy toward us. And there's something in us that makes us want to contribute. Even in some tiny way. And we look at our sins and our shortcomings and our failings and we begin to doubt that God could possibly love us. Because it, there's something in us that makes us think or feel that God loves me when I'm good and He hates me when I'm bad. And that's the little bit of Arminianism in all of us. And, and from time to time we, all, we, we look at our lives and we think, well, maybe I need to do more to get closer to God. Maybe I just need to do more. Well, certainly, we need to do, we can all say that. We, all, we can certainly all do more. But we always also have to remember that, as the Catechism so eloquently puts it, those who in true faith accept this Savior have all they need for their salvation. And that's why we say that in this second point, that the name of Jesus speaks of his perfection. A true believer always returns to the fact that through Jesus, our Father's love. And we we touched on this this morning as well too. Our our Father's love in Christ never ceases. Our names are never deleted. The Lord God through Christ will never hit the stop button. Or even the pause button on our salvation. And in those times. When that Arminianism arises to the surface in all of us. When we think that somehow. Maybe there's a way that I can keep myself in God's good graces. By my obedience. We remember that obedience is the fruit of our salvation not the cause of it and we come back we have to come back again and again to this glorious confession that we who in true faith accept this savior have in him all we need for our salvation we come back to rest in the words of our lord in john 336 whoever believes in the son has eternal life it's in our possession now, and it never will be taken away. And that's where true comfort lies, doesn't it? You know, we, we live in a difficult time for churches like ours, conservative, reformed churches. Churches that simply want to preach the gospel, the simple gospel, and who want to continue to worship the Lord reverently. I see difficult times for the church, for churches like ours, because there's so much competition today. This church has this down the road. That one has that. Why can't we have this? The music there is so peppy. And the people there are so excited. And you know that's all fine and good. But here's the thing. You can have all the excitement you want. But if Jesus isn't preached. If sinners and sin aren't being addressed. Then true Christianity is not being broadcast by God's servants and God's people are not being given the comfort that should be theirs as we sang of earlier what what does this call us to well we should be a praying people of course praying for what praying for reformation something we desperately need to be praying for in our day and age praying for a reformation in our church in our communities in our nation a reawakening among the churches of Christ uh, an end, a destruction of liberalism and liberal teachings, a revival in deep conviction and a desire to live for the Lord. So we, we should be praying for all of these things that to be happening in the church of Jesus Christ. And it calls us again, surprisingly, but maybe not so surprisingly. We need to be asking ourselves again today, based on these teachings, who is Jesus to me? Who do I, who do I say He is? Why was He named Jesus specifically? Do I personally find all I need to be right with God in Him? We need to be asking ourselves, even today, these questions. Why is it still necessary to confess in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus? Beloved, may our answer always be that it is because we believe We confess It's necessary to confess this because we believe that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And may this be our confident confession, that in this name, Jesus, I am ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. In this name, I find incomparable, all-sufficient salvation. Amen.